There's no legal bar to someone um, who chooses to uh, serve in position eight and be appointed. There's no legal bar from that individual um, submitting their candidacy and uh, running for election for the same seat. Well, that's Lauren Henry, the legislative legal counsel for the Seattle City Council, explaining an important dynamic in the city's efforts to seat a replacement for outgoing council member Teresa Mosqueda. So the council can't legally stop whoever takes this role from turning it into a political campaign for the permanent job. Plus, we're hearing about the mayor's new expanded plan to develop Fort Lawton, and we're taking a closer look at why and how I-5 was backed up in Seattle for six hours over the weekend. We have all this and more this week on Seattle News, Views, and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I am a host for the Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are mine, and I'm with co-host David Croman of the Seattle Times. David, I know we don't usually talk football, but... I think we were all mourning the Huskies' loss in the national championship. And did the dogs lose out to Michigan or the referees? I just wanted your take on that. Okay. Uh, well, I should preface with this is the first Huskies game I've ever sat down and watched. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I am not a, I am not a follower of the Huskies. Uh, but, you know, from when, from watching this game, I do think, you know, Michigan just played a better game. The rest yeah, didn't true. help. True. Uh, but if, if the game had been closer, the rest wouldn't have mattered. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. There was some national media talking about some of these missed calls for the dogs, too. But you know what? They needed to play better. I think everybody would say it. But a great season and a great run there. Thank you, David, as always, for joining me here. Thanks also to our background noise sponsor, City Grind Espresso, on the first floor of City Hall. And a big thanks to our show patrons. A shout out to Molly for jumping on board this past week. And if you'd like to support the show and to access patrons first podcast where i'm talking to local lawmakers and other movers and shakers out there jump in at the five dollar per month level why don't you it would be great to have you patrons we can't do this show without you really support it and a big thanks to converge media the video version of the podcast is on converge wednesday nights at seven all right let's get started time for right here right now Okay, it's time to follow up on the council's one and only job over the next couple of weeks here, seeing as how committees aren't meeting, the one and only job of replacing outgoing council member Teresa Mosqueda in citywide position eight. So we learned this week there is an additional vetting process that has to happen via King County. So this list of candidates won't be available until later on Wednesday. I'll make sure to send that out to you patrons and tweet it out as soon as I see it. But David, what struck me in the briefing meeting for the council on Monday was how much the council members kept coming back to to this question of, wait, are we hiring a caretaker for this position or someone who's going to take this job and run for a one-year term in November, potentially, and then possibly a four-year term for the permanent job in 2025? And I guess the answer that I heard from the legal department was, counsel, you do have latitude to do a lot of things in terms of the selection process, but legally, you cannot stop this person you seat from running for this job. And I just think this changes the calculus of the decision a little bit when the council is considering okay, let's bring in this caretaker is going to help us achieve our goals, or let's bring in someone who has their own political agenda. How do you look at this, David? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't don't think it's surprising to me that they they can't force this person to do one or one thing or the other. Um, You know, in the past, I think we've talked about this before, in the past, they've sort of uh, made it a prerequisite to applying that you won't run again, which is honor system, you know, there's nothing stopping the person from going to do that. But, you know, if you're running for election and you've lied about your intentions for running for election, maybe (laughs) that that wouldn't look very good to voters. Um, You know, I don't, I don't have a ear to the ground on how they're feeling about this. I, you know, I, 
I think um, this council, as we've talked about, is sort of uh, a super majority of people who are at least theoretically kind of aligned with each other. And so, yeah. um, you know, you would think that maybe they would want to elevate somebody that they want to continue to work with for a long time. Uh, sure. N- not to mention, you know, there's there's already been a lot of turnover and uh, the idea of somebody, you know, sitting in that seat for however many months, um, whatever, I don't know, nine months or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as they're getting their feet under them, getting swapped out for another person, you can see yeah. some reasons why they wouldn't want to do that. Um, right. But at the same time, you know, they, they, there's the, the person who's appointed didn't win election. So, um, and, and, you know, I mean, elevating, putting up, making a person an incumbent gives them a huge advantage right. in an election. And so uh, it, it does, you know, of course this person would have to run again and voters would get to choose, but it, does sort of elevate this person's profile beyond what anyone else running would would have. Yeah, and I know in talking about this last week, a few council members, including Tammy Morales, was saying, hey, we should probably have someone who really knows the ropes about how to get legislation passed because it's a very green council who doesn't have a good awareness of that. So where do you find that magical person who knows how to work the process yet is still aligned with some of these uh, goals of this moderate majority on the council? I, I'm not quite sure. And and full disclosure on this, folks, I might serve a role on this in the future. Actually moderated the forum where Abel Pacheco eventually won out, took the tail end of Rob Johnson's term in office in 2019. We're still getting details on how this forum of these different candidates and hearing from them, hearing them answer questions. It's going to happen next week on the 17th or 18th. I'll update you as soon as I get information there. Several community groups are vying to host the event. Many are suggesting questions that need to be asked. So I thought I'd put it to you in this way, David. If you had a had to ask a set of questions to a council candidate for this role, what would you want to ask them? Um, yeah, I, I think I think this is, you know, we've, I think we've seen this more in <clears throat> debates or public forums where the questions are, are just kind of basic factual questions to test right. how qualified they are. It's not, mm-hmm. not gotcha necessarily, but do you know what the job is that you're getting in for? I think um, to council member Morales's point, this person is going to be asked to handle some pretty big issues um, and, and maybe has not had the sort of year plus of thinking about these that, that people on a campaign trail get. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, questions like, just fairly basic questions of um, what if, okay. So if you say you want to cut to close the budget hole, what are you going to cut? Uh, yeah. If you need to raise money, where are you going to get that money? You know, you know, just sort of basic straightforward things, because I don't think this person is going to have much time for anything else except for sort of problem management, I would think. Right. Yeah. And I guess in looking at that, you talk about people who are on the campaign trail. A few people have said in the public hearing portion of these meetings, Tanya Wu, Tanya Wu, she actually ran against uh, Councilmember Morales in District 2, lost that race, but came close and earned a lot of support from uh, people in that area and was on the campaign trail and was learning in some ways about the job. Do you think she has a leg up or an edge just because she is one of those council members who has run before or excuse me, candidates who has run before? Um, maybe because, you know, I do think um, while there is not a lot of trend, uh, similarity between being on the campaign and actually governor governing yeah. Yeah. and anyone who runs for office will tell you that it is an opportunity to kind of hone what you believe and kind of what your theory of governing is. Mm. So that's helpful. Um, there will be backlash for sure if she's the one who's appointed because yeah. she she did run and she lost. So mm-hmm. <laughs> the voters have weighed in on her already. And, in a sense, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's something a little, I think that would make a, some people a little uneasy. 
at the same time, you know, she, she had a lot of support from the people who are on the council now, you know, Sarah Nelson attended a press conference, a campaign right. press conference with her. Um, mm-hmm. So she has friends and allies and they clearly think they could work with her. So, you know, yeah. it, it wouldn't surprise me. It, it would also, I think, be met a little bit with some pushback for the, from the people who explicitly voted against her. Yeah, fair. I'm, I'm very interested to see what this list of candidates is all about. I'll work on getting that to you folks before the end of the week when it comes out. Well, when the council does settle down, they will have a decision to make about a plan from Mayor Harrell about Fort Lawton, that area of land in Discovery Park the city has been trying to develop since roughly 2006. Now, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but David, it really looks like the mayor's going big here. The original plan called for 237 homes on about 34 acres here. This new plan calls for as many as 500 roughly, which we, as discussed before, kind of a nod to developers so that a project like this, which has a ton of infrastructure costs, can actually pencil out for them. The mayor says his plan also preserves the majority of the site as green, green space here, at least 22 acres worth. I, I was interested to see this, David, but I also know this is going to require some more work from the Office of Housing. The urbanist reporting about this really won't have information to the city council to consider until later this year, 2025. And I know the city wants to do this properly, but every delay I hear about, I also hear a, a cash register dinging in the background as the costs keep going up on this, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think this will require another uh, environmental impact statement, if I'm yep. not mistaken, which if there, when there are environmental impact statements, there are appeals, um, people who say it was not done properly and it goes back to hearing examiners. And, you know, uh, I think there is a risk that kind of going back to the drawing board on this extends the timeline quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they're saying 2025. I don't know. I mean, that, good luck. That yeah. Seems, that seems generous. Um, considering how long we've been at this now. Um, You know, I mean, the payoff theoretically would be more and you don't get a piece of property like this very often. So it makes sense that the mayor would want to maximize that. Um, But the the biggest problem with this site has just been delays. And, um, you know, there's a small group of people who oppose any development on this. this, If the goal is to build more affordable housing, this kind of opens up the door a little bit again for them to come back and oppose it again. And so, you know, there is a calculation here. I don't know what, what the correct one is, which is time versus quantity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know when those two things no longer match up. (laughs) Right. Or collide or however you want to look at it. And looking at this proposal, the mayor actually laid out three options. One with the original 237 units proposed. There's option B that has close to 500 homes, as I mentioned. And then there's C, a total rezone that would create nearly 1,000 homes here. And I just wanted to, I guess, press this issue a little bit further, David, in terms of where the city lands. Is it that uh, in the middle, just right, uh, Goldilocks and the three bears there, or do they try to go big with 1,000? I, I think there are some options here. And I almost think that developers, if they're looking to get the most bang for their buck, might actually push for more homes here, which again, would, would really open a can of worms, environmentally at least. Yeah, for sure. Um, it would open a can of worms. You know, I mean, I think these are the decisions that happen when the places that are open for development are as restricted as they are. Right, all the federal considerations with this. Because, uh-huh. I mean, even beyond that, you know, you see that, you know, there's a reason you see so much high-rise apartment development in the city mm-hmm. and not as much kind of low rise yeah yeah more stories because it, it, it's just the the urban village strategy sort of makes it so 
development is allowed in specific places. And so right. therefore, where there's development allowed, the developers want to maximize maximize that and put as many units as they can. So yes, here, here is kind of a rare opportunity with an open piece of land for affordable housing. There are not that many of them um, right. for a lot of reasons. And so uh, again, you could see developers pushing for you know larger numbers. You know, the, the, the also this is not 2019 anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> when interest rates were yep. basically exactly. nothing. Um, everything the cost of everything has gone up and so any development is getting harder to pencil and so yeah. um I, I imagine that probably had something to do with mayor harold's decision too it's just the math on this for 230 doesn't it maybe yeah. made sense in 2018 or 19 but yeah apparently doesn't make sense now so you're gonna look to, to more yeah you think about the economic realities of this just the lack of space we have in Seattle of plots like this to actually build. That's a very good point you made there. And I was just bringing up some of the different federal regulations at play, transferring this from a former military site into something that's owned by the city of Seattle, working through HUD, working through our congressional delegation. This is going to be a big, big lift for the city of Seattle with a pretty green council. So we'll see where they land on this one when it starts coming back into their purview end of this year, beginning of next, if things go as planned here. All right, well, up next, what do we got going on? We've got a state legislature underway this week, and they are doubling down on housing. We're going to focus on what's building support and what might not be building support in terms of legislative proposals. Learn more coming up next on Now Hear This. Well, you may remember last year in Olympia, it was called the Year of Housing by many Democratic legislators. Lawmakers wrestled with groups like the Association of Washington Cities and others with things like improving so-called missing middle housing, allowing for the construction of more fourplexes or sixplexes. Well, this year, some lawmakers say it's time to double down on this proposal. Democrats say let's push this, maybe even consider a measure like rent stabilization. Republicans are saying, hang on, more bureaucratic red tape is not the answer. You know, I think on rent stabilization, I think the details matter. And so I think it'll be uh, whether that has the votes to pass, I think will depend on the details as it works its way through the process. Recent regulations adopted in November would add approximately fifteen dollars to $30,000 to the cost of a new construction for a homeowner. We must lower the high cost of building new housing. It is driving people onto the streets and putting home ownership out of reach. That's State Senator Andy Billig, the Democrat from Spokane there, and also with him, Senator Nikki Torres, the Republican from the 15th Legislative District in Yakima, also the ranking member of the Land Use Committee. I I wanted to focus on one priority each week with you, maybe here while we're in the legislative session, and housing is a huge one. Just some background here, folks. There's a coalition of Democratic lawmakers that's pointing out the Department of Commerce says our state needs to add more than one million units in the next 20 years, with at least half in the affordable category just to keep up with growth. How do we do that? So I'm looking at some of the major bills in the legislature right now, and one is transit-oriented development, which would require cities to open up more areas for development near our state's biggest public transit investments. This is Senate Bill 5466. was in the works last year, but time ran out on this one. So the initial bill, at least in terms of what it looks like right now in Olympia, it says at least 10% of the new units need to be affordable to people making 60% or less of the area median income. And David, this is one of those situations where transportation, your beat, really is in the same lane with housing here. But I know that cities have pushed back for more flexibility on these transit-oriented development bills. Where do you see this debate going? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think housing is a really interesting one because it kind of transcends uh 
party to a certain extent. I mean, mm. maybe there's a little more support for this kind of thing on the Democratic side, but you know, the, the missing middle bill last year was um, co-sponsored by a Republican and a Democrat because, I mean, we're not, what we're talking about here is opening up more opportunities for private developers to build larger. So philosophically, that's uh, kind of kind of works on both both ends yeah, of the spectrum. Right. Now, doesn't require a lot of public spending or new taxes or anything. All you're doing is changing the laws to let private developers do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it didn't happen. Didn't happen last session. I don't know the specifics of why. Um, the, the pushback on this is always that that thing about flexibility. That yeah. you know, lo- local jurisdictions say they know what's best for their community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the I think that argument is still holds some sway, and we saw that in the way that the missing middle bill was revised down a little bit from what mm-hmm. it was originally proposed. That's as. true. Yeah, um, it is holding less sway. I would I would say because the fact of Washington's housing shortage is widely held now. I mean, it's not just Seattle; it's every most communities are seeing housing costs increase, and yeah, I think both Republicans and Democrats. This is this is the sort of approach, you know, rent stabilization, stabilization, rent control. That is never going to get Republican support, let alone yeah. majority of Democrat support. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of Democrats are opposed to it also. Mm-hmm. Um, but zoning changes and, and allowing for more density, that's that's a solution that, um, you know, a lot of experts say is probably the, the most important and uh, one that that has bipartisan support. And, you know, despite the fact that the Democrats have control of all the chambers mm-hmm. of power and Olympia, you know, a lot of them still do want to do big changes on a bipartisan way. Right. My, my perspective is on transportation, which yeah. with the exception of the move ahead package, the, the chairs of those committees tend to like to work with each other. I yeah. think housing is, is probably one of those two where they yeah. recognize that the rollout of, of a big change like this would probably go down easier if they, if they are not, fighting political headwinds at the time. Yeah, they're not forcing it, right. Mm -hmm. You know, rent control will show up in uh, political ads. Zoning change probably will not. Right, right. You make a good point there. And I, just in touching on that, the sponsor of the rent stabilization bill, as it's been called, Yasmin Trudeau, tried to get this through last year. She's, of course, the Democrat from the 27th district in Tacoma. This was a bill that was going to limit rent increases that exceed inflation to 3% per year, stop landlords from charging move-in fees that exceed one month's rent. Didn't have all the support from Democrats last year. I'm also doubtful that this would be a bipartisan sell, especially during a short session. But there was one other housing issue that I wanted to bring up with you, David, that Mia Gregerson has brought up, the Democrat from the 33rd district down in Burien. Do we bring back the, the SRO, the apartment buildings where you've got rooms with a shared kitchen or something along those lines. I thought this was an interesting twist. It's something the legislature's been talking about for a little while. It would make sense in really dense areas, potentially like Seattle, but I know there are some concerns with that too. Any thoughts on the SROs coming back? It does seem like that, hey, we're increasing supply type thing that might entice Republicans there, but I just wanted some thoughts on the SROs. What do you think about that? Co-living, as it's called. Yeah, the SROs, it's it's, it's interesting because... Yeah, they don't have a in, in some in some regards they don't have a great history. I mean, they were sort of True. slums almost. I mean, not not well maintained, not um, great locations. At the same time, they are they were housing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, right. And anyone who looks around and sees how much homelessness we have, I think, would prefer 
that maybe less than maybe less than ideal indoor housing over extremely unideal, you know, encampments or what have you. So right. um, it is, I, I, in some ways, it kind of falls into that like tiny house d- yep, debate, debate around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe people don't see it as an ideal solution, but it is. If the choice is between that and nothing, people tend to choose the, the thing. And so mm-hmm. I can see yeah. single SROs um, being in that category. I don't know. I have no idea what the economics are on yeah. being a developer of SROs. I don't know who would want to do that. Maybe maybe it's great. Maybe it's great yeah. economics because you get yeah. so many in such a small space. But right, um, you know there there are there are also risks of of the conditions in those kind of degrading pretty quickly. So yeah, interesting. I I hadn't given a lot of thought. Yeah, it, there's a history of a lot of concerns with it in Seattle, and and this is really a nascent conversation, David. I think it's it's really just starting, but uh, I'm interested to see where this goes because, as you say, there are so many different urban areas that are looking for different solutions. This would be a huge step above tiny houses, but a lot of concerns uh, connected with it too. Uh, let me talk about something else here, uh, David, that I thought was an interesting transportation getting out of its lane kind of a story here. We had a major shutdown of I-5 last week when a number of people were on the freeway protesting the Israel-Hamas war. Your colleague David Gutman wrote about this, saying that this event actually surprised the state patrol. Roadway was shut down for about five hours. Some confusion over whether a dispersal order was given by law enforcement there. I know the Times editorial board was talking about this too, saying there's got to be a way to stop these protests from happening. I know they turned dangerous in 2020. I-5 was blocked off. A protester was hit and killed there. I I just wanted your take on this, David. How do you think law enforcement handled this protest? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, I think obviously there's some frustration that they didn't clear it more quickly. Um, But on the other hand, you know, we've seen, we've seen some situations like this really degrade by by police attempting to clear out a protest and turn more violent. And uh, so, you know, I I think this was sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for the Washington State Patrol. Really inconvenient for the drivers, sure. but but as far as I know, it didn't it didn't turn into a big kind of tear gas and uh, blast. Thankfully, ball right, event, uh, which is which is good. And um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't have a great sense on like. So you could you could pass new policies. You could create more rules around how the state patrol should act here. But you know, when you're on the ground, you're sort of. I mean, it's kind of a de-escalation situation. Yeah. You're trying to resolve the situation in a way that. I mean, you know, it's civil disobedience. Right. It's a common tactic used in, uh, you know, making a point in protest is blocking traffic. It's it's inconvenient for people, but in some ways that's the point. It's not violent. Um, So, you know, how do you, how do you wind that down without looking like, you know, recalling the riots of the civil rights movement or whatever it might be. Right. Right. um, Or 2020 for that matter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know, you know, I don't know what the correct approach is on this. Yeah, I know. And it, it's very much uh, Monday morning quarterbacking on this one, trying to figure out the better way to do it. I think the idea was to try to de-escalate things. But uh, being surprised by this, it sounded like there was one unsubstantiated report about this going forward. But uh, yeah, I think the state patrol has been saying a few different times, this is illegal. This is something we don't want to have happen here. But uh, as this war continues in the Middle East and as we continue to see people protesting in our area, it is something that I know they're going to be watching for and keeping a very close eye on after that big, big closure last week. All right. Well, coming up, 
It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's an iPhone coming down from the sky. A strange but true story in the wake of a terrifying mechanical problem on an Alaska Airlines flight. That's coming up on Transportation Talk. Well, David, you wrote recently in the Seattle Times about a side story people might not have considered after that Boeing 737 MAX 9 had a terrifying blowout in its fuselage 16,000 feet above ground, mind you, in Oregon last Friday. Thankfully, I don't know how exactly, but nobody was hurt. But hey, we've all seen the movies. Stuff starts flying out of that plane when a massive pressure change like that happens. And David, you reported an iPhone somehow in working order was actually found after this incident. I, I, how, how is this possible? What, what was this all about? Yeah, I mean, it was a, I mean, a scary situation, but this was a sort of funny story within that. Just the National Trans- Transportation Safety Board had basically right, right. put out a call for people in the area to look for debris. They were really looking for the door that the, the door plug that blew off yeah, to try and right. figure out what happened. But um, so you know, this guy who lives in Vancouver was headed into town to meet a friend for lunch, and he was an aviation fan enthusiast yeah. <laughs> he likes kind of following investigations like this so he saw yeah. that and said hey i'll go down a little early and walk around a little bit and so wow. he's walking around and he sees this phone on the ground and looked to be in decent shape so he kind of assumed it must have fallen out of somebody's pocket but you know he picked it up turned right on and there on the screen and it was unlocked and there on the screen was somebody had been checking their email and uh, it was a baggage receipt for people on the flight that had wow. been blown out so uh, you know, if I'm Apple, I'm probably giving this guy a call and trying to <laughs> trying to get my phone in, in an advertisement or something. Yeah. I think what happened is that, uh, you know, at, at a certain point, you know, for all those physics students out there, at a certain yes. point, the, the phone reaches a maximum speed. And then I think it it landed just perfectly in like a bush. So it slowed, right. its, slowed its crash and then landed on a grass, some grass below. So the screen even wasn't didn't even seem to be cracked. Yeah, that's that's what I'm amazing. saying. I drop mine three feet and it cracks. This one goes three miles and it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. it's it's kind of amazing. And then all these crazy stories emerging from this this fifteen uh, year old kid whose shirt and jacket were ripped off when this thing blew out of there somehow survived and was able to get through that. That's terrifying to see. But I also wanted to look about this in in terms of what happens next. I know the investigation is still ongoing. What do you think the impact is going to be on Boeing and uh, airlines like Alaska? I know this is something they really want to get a hold of, and they've found some loose bolts and things of that nature. Where does this investigation go from here? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not the expert on this. My colleague, Dominic Gates, who you know, is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter yes. on exactly this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. my, my sense is it's uh, really bad for Boeing because yeah. um, this is an airline that's tr- been trying to shed its reputation for safety oversights and Yep. Uh, by all accounts, this is not a one-off thing, but investigators have found loose bolts on other planes, suggesting that per- the company that is assembling these planes, um, I can't remember where they were, Spirit Aerosystems, oh, was okay. not tightening down the bolts, and that Boeing in their inspections was not catching that these bolts were not mm. tight. So, wow. you know, that's not good. Um, I don't know no. what it means to the company long-term, um, and, and specifically what it means for their max line of planes because um you know it's just has not it's been a disaster from the beginning to end yeah we will see where this investigation goes again uh, very fortunate that no one was hurt very fortunate that that iphone screen didn't get cracked that's the that's the rest of the story here but do need to wrap up with you david and i've noticed you've been tracking some of our state ferries as they ply their way through puget sound including uh, people uh, some of these ferries rolling through some nasty windy weather 
I, I just wanted your take on this. What is it like being on one of those boats in a big gale? And what did you see with this recent trip for the ferry boat uh, Issaquah out there? Uh, yeah, well, we might publish it. I think probably since we've been talking, a little story is published about this. But um, yeah, so it was, uh, the, the, fortunately, there were no passengers on this boat. The Issaquah was heading from Bainbridge Island to Anacortes to swap in uh, to on the San Juan Island route. But, uh, you know, it was a gale force warning and they got out there and they kind of realized pretty quickly that they should probably not be out there. Uh, Uh-oh. But as it turned out, it would have been more dangerous for them to do a 180 and come back than it was to just keep going forward. So there's a video floating around actually from one of the workers on board of huge amounts of water sloshing across the car deck. Uh, one person on Whidbey told me he saw what he thought were like 20 foot waves broadsiding the boat. Um, so yeah, if you look at the Marine tracker, you know, usually the boats go you know, fairly doing a zigzag route tacking basically uh, against the wind, the spokesperson for the ferry system told me, had they known how bad it was going to be, they would not have sent the ferry out there. But they just wow. guessed wrong. The, the wind turned out to be a lot worse than they were expecting. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad everyone's okay on that trip, too. That, yeah. was, uh, that was quite a zigzag route they were running there. So, yeah. Anyway, glad they're okay, David, and uh, glad you're keeping track of that, too. I I love that, like, Indiana Jones dotted line they've got there of, uh, of the boat yeah. rolling through there. <laughs> it's crazy to see. All right. Well, thank you, David. As always, thanks to everybody listening to Seattle News Views and Brews, where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics. This podcast is on Apple, Spotify, wherever you might listen. Please find Seattle News Views and Brews on Patreon. Show your support there. Thanks also for watching on Converge Media as well. Talk to you next time, everybody. See you soon. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Callanan Media Services. Copyright 2024.